morning, everyone. I feel grateful to be here, to be among all of you, to receive grace and healing in this community. I've been a student here for 39 years. <laughs> I started here. <laughs> I started here in 83, and I keep coming back, and I am just grateful. Today, I want to urge you to remember the poor. The very thing Paul writes to us in Galatians 2.10 and a story. So I got my, my day labor job stripping tobacco in Georgetown. I stayed the night with 150 people on the gymnasium floor of the Salvation Army. It's called the Way House. It was Lexington. Lexington was the first of 11 journeys I took to try to understand what it's like to be on the other side. And we can all find ways to do that somehow. I went to Pittsburgh and Tulsa and Jacksonville, Florida. The list is long and the experiences were eye-opening for me who basically run, I run a, a shelter for people who experience homelessness. And so I remember we got out of the pickup truck. We all met at McDonald's. Actually, I thought I was getting a job at McDonald's, but it wasn't going to be the case. And so we, uh, we're in the back of a pickup truck, and we all get out. One guy pulls a knife on another guy. I step out of the way, and I'm, I'm frozen in fear, and I didn't know what to say or what to do. My heart eventually calmed down. I got my assignment. By the way, nothing happened in that incident. And I started stripping tobacco. I don't even smoke. I was never even a smoker. But, you know, it's a learning curve. You put the, you put the, the, the left stalk here and the right leaf there, and you shake it all about. <laughs> and, uh, and the boss comes around, and he hoses things. He missed. He hosed me down. And, then, and um, he says to me, boy, what's wrong with you? Anyway, I had a lot of learning to do. I ended up getting stick, sick. The, the guys next to me had something I didn't have. It was called stamina. Uh, they ran out of that at Walmart. And so I, I'm like, okay. Eventually, I got so sick. So the lunch break came. We got $5 for four hours of work. And I thought, I have to admit, I hadn't thought about this before. What are the labor laws in this state? Is, is that right? Anyway, so we got dropped off, at, 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 and we went to lunch, and I eventually quit. I hitchhiked back to town because I was so sick. Uh, I was in so much pain. I didn't know what to do. I later learned I had gallstones, but at the time, I had no, no idea what was going on. And so I hitchhiked back to town. I walked from Circle 4 down to the downtown area, and I'm just kind of wandering around, uh, waiting for something to open, and this guy comes up to me, and he says, hey, man, let me have some money. I said, I don't have any money. I, I stayed where you stayed last night. I walked away. He grabs me, pulls me back to himself. He clenches his teeth. He goes, I said, let me have some money. Now, I don't know if you all have been in one of those situations, but I hadn't been in one since I actually did that when I was a juvenile delinquent. But, but I was scared. I, my heart was beating, and I lied more enthusiastically the second time by saying, I don't have any money, man. I stayed where you stayed last night. He released his grip. I finally walked away, and then I thought to myself, 
why did I lie? Actually, I had a dollar and some change left in my pocket. I could have said, you know, I only have a dollar and change. I prefer to keep it, thank you. But I didn't. I actually lied twice. And then it hit me, something I had never learned in all the previous years of caring for people without homes. I lied in order to survive. And then and there I understood something I never, never had understood before, that survival becomes the mission statement of people who live in the situation of homelessness. And it became a, a different paradigm for me as I continued to work with people. Well, I grew up in the Jewish capital of Ohio, which if you didn't know, you do now, it's called Cleveland Heights. And I never met a Christian in all of the years I lived in Cleveland Heights. It's a suburb of Cleveland. And then as a result of uh, my mom remarrying, uh, we moved to a little town outside of Dayton called Centerville. I later renamed the Land of the Gentiles. And I met Christians for the first time in my life. They told me about Jesus. I said, I'm Jewish. We don't believe in Jesus. They said Jesus was Jewish. I said, no way. I didn't really know anything about Jesus except when my father got angry. That's another story. And um, so they, they told me the gospel. I didn't understand any of it. But then I did receive Jesus in my life. In uh, I was 16, going on 17, and, uh, and uh, I became a follower of Jesus in 1975 in high school, and, um, and I've, never, I've never looked back. And God has begun the process of producing change in my life. First miracle was I graduated high school. I was an addict between the age of 12 to the age of 16, and... Um, I graduated high school and went to college, and God called me to ministry, and my calling was primarily by God putting these intense desires in me to do something I've never done before. Now, there's a little lesson in Scripture from Mark 2 about that. These four guys take their paralyzed friend. The line is long. It's getting late. The sun's going down, and one of them gets an idea, and he has to persuade the other three to do something he's never done before and they've never done before. But this is the kingdom economy. And you guys are leaders, and this is your destiny to, to create innovation and creativity and take risks because we want to get to the end of the story to hear Jesus say, which is easier? Are you there? To hear your sins are forgiven or, or rise up and walk. Well, this morning's passage is from Luke 4. I offer it as a lens through which we might even consider looking through the Gospel of Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus reads from Isaiah. It had been an average day in Nazareth until then, and Jesus was announcing something long foretold. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the Spirit of the Lord is on you, Andrew. It's on you, Nicole. It's on you, Christine. It's on you, Ruthann. The Spirit of the Lord is on you, for the Lord has anointed you to preach, to bring good news to the poor. And I want to just share with you our journey. This is year 42 of how we are learners. 
Our primary identity is learners. We're in a little area of the world called Appalachia in southern Ohio. The town is Athens. It's a college town. Some of you have heard of Athens through Joe. He played in the Super Bowl this year, and he made us all famous for the Bengals, in case you didn't know that. We're learning to love people who are not like us. And therein lies the mystery of incarnation. And can we lay down not just our lives, but is it reasonable? Is it possible? Is it, is it conceivable that God would call us to lay down our social life? I mean, Lord, you don't mean Friday, because I go out with the guys. And not, yeah. How about, Lord, you don't mean like you want me to be friends with them? I don't even like them. Oh, well, there's a starting point. So we, is it possible that the kingdom of God intersects with us as we befriend people who are socioeconomically, mentally, emotionally different than us? But amen, amen. You bet. So we lay these questions over these passages, and these are your homework questions. Now, I think every, every Christian community must wrestle with these questions. We continue to wrestle with them every year, over and over again. As we listen to the passage, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. We must begin with, who are the poor and what are their names? Well, I'm not good with names. Well, neither am I. But we can work with that. And we can help each other with that. And we can learn people's names. It's very important that we start with people's names. And it also requires us to start with intentionality. And who are the people in your circles? But without intentionality, there aren't there isn't much fruit. We must go to intentionality and, and be vulnerable and, and open our lives and seek to pray for a friend. Because I will tell you this, I've read books, I've heard lectures, I've been to conferences, a lot of talk about the poor, about people in poverty and homelessness, people in addiction and mental illness, but it wasn't until I met someone, her name was Carol, the year was 1981, that I began to understand things I could never have understood. It is the relationships themselves that with, were in, so be, are you, understand, you can't understand the sentence. The people provide information and context to the information of the of the matter of, of loving and caring. And without those people, the sentences don't make sense. Who are the people and what do they struggle with? What is SNAP? What is HUD? What are the acronyms? And I'm in the United States, as you know, but the people in poverty in the world, we must come as learners to learn one thing, how to love, how to love our neighbors. And how to love as Jesus has, 
as loved up. And I'll tell you, that is not possible except in community. We will get to the end of our capacity very quickly. It is in community that we are able to sustain long-term ministry and mission. And something else, at least for us, I have found for our ministry in our context that worship is the primary paradigm of mission. And that ultimately what we do is for you, Lord. And whether someone is grateful or ungrateful, responsive or unresponsive, for we are not results-oriented. We're worship-oriented. And so whether we're making a bed or whether we're cleaning up a bathroom, or whether we're just listening. And you know that listening takes work, and it's always the work of worship. Lord, this is for you. And so the paradigm of worship is the one thing that has sustained me all of these years. Honestly, this is so significant that I return to it every day because the work we do is hard loving broken people who have been violated, who have not only, they're at the other side of, of systemic sin and oppression. Where am I in the story? Lord, I am here as a vessel of honor. And I pray every day, Lord, just use me. Who are the poor? And then secondly, what is the gospel? If our, if our mission is to preach good news, what does that look like in the particular context where God is sending you? In my context, that means that I must learn about the history and the values and the people and the beauty and the needs of rural Appalachia. What's it like in your context? What is the gospel and how does it fit into the context? Well, I will tell you that the one thing I've discovered over all these years about the gospel is it's nothing more sophisticated than introduction to a person. For the gospel is the person of Jesus. And all my job is in our community is we are we're introducers. Some may call us evangelists, but we like the word introducers. And that's our role. The gospel is a person. And our, you may be the only book about Jesus that some people will ever read. Our witness is both individual and community. But the gospel is not a method, it's not a program, it's a person. And the, the process of sharing this person has everything to do with how this person has transformed our lives. I'll never be the same again, oh no. I learned that when I was in England traveling with an evangelist a long time ago. And then how do we bring it? What are our methods? In these shelters that I was experiencing the situation of homelessness. I was required to sit through a sermon many times. It's a condition of eating. I could tell you stories about that. How do you bring it? What is your method? Do we use manipulation or are we using sincerity and transparency and vulnerability and weakness? I have discovered that mutuality is a diamond in the rough of how we trans and transfer the good news of the person of Jesus. And I want to tell you about one program that we do in just a minute. Well, we have found some best practices, at least they're best for us. I'm not sure they're transferable everywhere, but I'll share them with you. Number one, it's always about relationship, not program. 
Number two, it's always about trust. How can I build a higher and higher level of trust with this person? Will these words, these casual, unguarded words, will they build trust or will they diminish trust? Why? Because trust is the primary soil through which the seed can be planted. It's always about meeting a need. These are the, we, we, we care for people, we provide food and shelter, but there's also a need of companionship. And don't forget the need to be needed that we can facilitate in our community with people who think they are the throwaways of our society. Invite them to have a place, for place is the door through which people will experience purpose. And then finally, is there a way in our method, I don't like that word, by the way, to invite people to have a change of identity in the pre-Christian world, to make them some kind of a participant, to move them from a recipient to a participant in some way, because that's the context of transformation in all of these relationships. About 15 years ago, we began to experiment, and that's what mission is all about. We spell faith, E-X-P-I-E-R-M-E-N-T-A-T-I-O-N. And you try things, and if you haven't failed, well, you will. And if you don't have a theology of failure, I can help you with that today. So we tried this idea of creating a third way, helping people get things they need. Because in our culture, there are really two ways. You give them stuff, or you sell them stuff. And so we created the third way. And it's, it's this idea. We invite people who need something to come and join us as a volunteer. And they volunteer time. In exchange for time, they get points. In exchange for points, they get something they need. We provided car number 191 recently. That's 191 families who have donated cars. And when someone calls us on the phone, they say, I heard I can get a car. We say, yeah, you called the right place at the right time, and we're glad you called. And they go, what? Because that's not what they're expecting. Now, there is a waiting list, but we invite people to leave the old identity called needy and enter into a new identity in our culture called volunteer. And as they serve alongside other volunteers, something transformational occurs in both groups. And so we send, we send volunteers working for cars to the homes of widows in our community. We serve a lot of widows at their homes. And they get to the home with five or six volunteers. And the, the person whose home we're at, they don't look out the door and say, oh, you must be the volunteer working for the car. And you're the volunteers from Columbus. That are, no, it doesn't work like that. For we lift the poor from the ash heap by giving them a new identity. It's so significant as we build relationships and build trust. And as they, as, they, as they spend time, they get points. And as they get points, they can have a car. And we have a ceremony. And we celebrate that person. And we celebrate the donor. This is the process of bringing people in the community, clothing them with dignity. And I will tell you that dignity is not less important than feeding people. For how you do something is not less important than what you do. And so we bring them in the community, we clothe them with dignity, we invite them to use their abilities to help others. And there is something transformational. And as we build trust, we're invited into their lives. We get permission. 
you know, we have these principles of witness, and, and one of them is get permission. Don't, you, and, and it's, don't assume you have that. Earn the right to speak. Assume God is at work way before you ever showed up. These principles have served us well as we built long-term friendships with people in poverty over a long period of time. And so, I offer these ideas to you and urge you to create environments where people can associate, where the, where the haves and the have-nots can, can associate in some way, can meet each other. We've been doing this for many years, and it's really remarkable as people form friendships in a context that doesn't mean I'm the helper and you're the helpee. Create an environment where you can associate people in your community to meet people. And then form these relationships and serve. And in the end, in the final end, we become like Paul who writes to the Thessalonians. We were well pleased not just to tell you the gospel. You know the rest of this? But to share our lives with you because you had become so dear to us. And that is the destiny of our community's relationships with people over long periods of time. Well, I close with this idea, this radical idea. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and write a book about you. No. <laughs> That's not it. Have you on the radio? No. Make you the keynote speaker at the, you know, no, no. No, because the work that we do, this work produced by faith, this labor prompted by love, the work that we do is for a much higher purpose than people appreciating and, and recognizing and thanking us. It's a much greater purpose, for we are participating in something called the glory of God. Let your light shine before others that they may see and glorify. There is something much larger, far more interesting this thing that Moses prayed for in Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. And I love the words of the psalmist. I'm stalling because Jessica's supposed to take over for me. <laughs> I love the words of the psalmist who once said, may the glory of God fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Brothers and sisters, we are all on a beautiful journey. And the one thing I pray that God would do through me and through you is that God would use us to establish on earth, in the name of the Father, on earth, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.